Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. Welcome to episode 28 of Calm Words for Anxious Hearts. So two things I want to say right off the bat. Number one, I'm so glad you are listening. Number two, I am running out of things to say. Now, fear not, I am committed to this podcast, at least for the remainder of the year, and then we'll see where we are with COVID and reassess. But I do have somewhat of a content creation problem, meaning that we may need to venture together into some unknown lands to keep this going and explore some things in more depth, perhaps in the form of a series. Now, last week, we finished up a two-week series on grace. Today, we start a five-week series on, get ready, prayer. The month of August and early September is all about prayer. For today, I thought we'd just begin by exploring the God we pray to, and we'll start with a very brief reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Here ends the reading. As a priest, I often find myself in arguments over some of the most controversial issues of our time, the last of which was a really heated debate over the single most memorable moment in the history of college football. And of the many suggestions offered, most were a variation of the same play. And although it's named after a Roman Catholic prayer, this particular play is used by Catholics, Protestants, and atheists alike. And of course, the play to which I refer is the Hail Mary. Now, for you non-sports fans, the Hail Mary is a play of desperation. The Hail Mary is run when The clock is ticking away, the goal line seems a mile away, and a victory is in jeopardy. In other words, the Hail Mary is a last resort, where the quarterback desperately hurls the ball against impossible odds to the corner of the end zone. And so why call this the Hail Mary? Well, the idea is that a pass thrown in such desperate circumstances can only be completed with the help of divine intervention. Commentators will even say that the quarterback threw up a prayer in such situations. Now, here's what I want us to consider. Why is the Hail Mary the only play in football named after a prayer? There is no Hail Mary kickoff return to begin the game, and no coach has ever run the Lord's Prayer halfback sweep. And so why is Mary brought in the last play of the game? And here's my answer to that question. It's because prayer is something that we often associate with desperation. The rationale is that for the majority of the game, I can rely on my own strength, my own resources, my own game plan to carry me. But in a moment of crisis, 
when human competency and cleverness have failed, when all other options are depleted, when something significant is in jeopardy, that, of course, is when it's time to throw up a prayer. Because prayer is something that our world associates with desperation. Now, here's the thing. I am not judging that. It is very appropriate to pray when we're desperate. And God is very pleased when we pray, whether we're desperate or not. But of course, that doesn't mean that prayer is not also important and formative and rich when life is stable. But not only that, prayer is absolutely essential if you and I are to grow in our faith. And yet we struggle. Oh, how we struggle to pray. As Paul once noted in his letter to the Romans, we do not know how to pray as we ought. And doesn't that capture our experience? We don't always know what to say. We don't know how to listen. And because of that, some of us never even get started in our journey of prayer. And so today, the question I want us to consider is this. How do we learn to pray well and to make prayer a consistent aspect of our life? Now, we're not going to answer that question fully today, but we will get started. And to start, I want to say a word about why I think we struggle to pray well. I think a lot of us struggle to pray because we have a faulty image of God. For instance, we may think that God is angry with us or that God prefers that we not bother God with small and trivial things. Or maybe we believe that God just doesn't care about certain aspects of our life. But whenever I pray, I don't pray to God the condemning judge. I don't pray to God the petty accountant who is weighing my bad deeds to make sure they don't outweigh the good deeds. And my image of God is also not akin to that of a kind grandparent who wants to give me a piece of candy or spoil me in some way. And of course, as a Christian, I don't believe that God is divine and personal energy or nothing more than a philosophical concept with its roots in Greek philosophy and metaphysics. None of that captures what I believe to be true about God. And I say that Because as Christians, we believe that God has revealed God's self in and through the Bible and that God wants to be known, but in a very particular way. And so if you and I are to pray well, and if we're going to have a proper understanding of our faith, I think we always need to start by affirming that which is true about God's character. And so that leaves us with a question, just who exactly is the God we pray to. And to answer that question, I want to give us eight truths about the God we pray to. And lucky for us, they all happen to start with the letter P. And by the way, I borrow these from the recently deceased and highly influential Anglican theologian J.I. Packer. And so what is the God we pray to like? Number one, the God we pray to is personal. God isn't a force or just impersonal energy. God is personal. That's part of what it means to say that you and I are made in the image of God. In the same way that we take personal interest in each other, God has a personal interest in your life. The God we pray to has 
something akin to a deep investment in who you are and what you care about and what matters to you. The God we pray to is personal. Number two, the God we pray to is plural. Now, of course, God is one. As the creed of St. Athanasius states, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. Translation, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not three gods, but one, one God. And yet, we also affirm the mystery that there are three distinct personalities within the one Godhead. And what this means, practically speaking, is that God is, by definition, a perfect community. God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. And the Bible's witness is that the three persons of the Trinity are both one in being and purpose, but also that they work together for our salvation. We don't worship three gods, but one God. But the one God we pray to is plural. Number three, the God we pray to is perfect. What this means is that God is not capable of being better or holier or wiser than God actually is. God lacks nothing. God is not deficient in any way. God needs no improvement. When Moses asks God for God's name, God's response is, I am who I am, which is God's way of saying that God is perfect. God just is. Always present, always in control, lacking nothing. Number four, the God we pray to is powerful. This means that God is omnipresent, permeating every inch of our world. There's literally nowhere that we can go to hide from God. You'd be better off hiding from Sherlock Holmes in a telephone booth than you'd be hiding from God. But not only is God omnipresent, God is also omniscient, which means that God knows everything, literally everything that has been, everything that is, everything that will be in the future. Nothing surprises God. The past, the present, the future all belong to God. The God we pray to is powerful. Number five, the God we pray to is purposeful. God has a purpose in creating us and in creating our world And it's not primarily our self-esteem or even our comfort. Now, granted, having a proper understanding of God and our place in God's world will no doubt help low self-esteem, but God's purpose is much greater than most of us tend to imagine. And God's purpose is twofold. First, God wants all of creation to honor and glorify His Son, Jesus Christ. Second, God wants His adopted sons and daughters, that's you and me, God wants us to be holy, joyful, complete, fulfilled, which of course is tied to that first objective of knowing, loving, and obeying Jesus. After all, the Bible tells us that we were created for Christ and through Christ, which means that our purpose is found in Him. But the God we pray to has a clear purpose. Number six, the God we pray to is a promise keeper. God makes promises to people who trust in God. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I will not let anything happen to you that in the end will not work for your good. These are just a few of the promises that God makes us, promises that God, 
because God is perfect and powerful and purposeful, will not break. The God we pray to makes promises, and God does not break those promises. Number seven, the God we pray to is paternal. Jesus tells us to call God Father. Yes, God also compares God's self to a mother, but unfortunately that doesn't start with a P. In all seriousness, God does not have a gender, and any quality that is good about men and women derive their being from the perfect being of God. And so I do want to be clear about that. But Jesus is our model when he called God Father or Abba in Aramaic, meaning God calls us God's children and God behaves towards us as a loving parent would. This biblical metaphor of fatherhood, for instance, it means authority, affection, and care on the one hand, but also discipline and protection on the other. And like all good parents, God wants God's children to grow up, to become strong and wise and mature. And number eight, the God we pray to is praiseworthy because God is personal and plural and perfect and powerful and purposeful and promise-keeping and paternal. Does it not stand to reason that God is also praiseworthy? God merits all the adoration we can give to God, not only for who God is, but also for the faithfulness that God shows us in so many different ways. And so back to our question, what is the secret? How do we learn to pray well and with consistency? And the secret to praying well begins with the knowledge that God is praiseworthy, not just intellectually speaking, but we are to praise God with our hearts, knowing that God is at the center of the universe and that God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves will always lead to a posture of adoration. And if I had just one word to choose what best describes what it is that God has done for us, that for which we should adore God, that word would be adoption by living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should ultimately die. God has brought us into God's family. God has adopted us as children. God has given us a great inheritance. All things that belong to Jesus now belong to us as well. God looks at us and feels great pride and great joy. God calls us his own and says, With you, I am well pleased. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, put it like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love, God destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished onto us, In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. Here ends the reading. I want you to hear what Paul is saying here. Paul says that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. 
that we've been chosen before the foundation of the world, that we're destined for adoption, that we're redeemed through Jesus' blood, that we are forgiven of all our trespasses. And so this is where authentic, joy-filled prayer begins, and where our five-week series on prayer begins, with a correct understanding of the God we pray to, which of course includes the wonderful salvation that God has accomplished for us. And when this starts to sink in, whenever this wonderful news of the gospel reaches the deep places of our heart, prayer will become for us not a last resort, but a first resort.